chapter 3. If you're using one of the Green Church Bibles, that's page 1219. And in the larger print Bibles, 1889. 1 Peter chapter 3. And let me just remind you while you're turning there, the passage we're going to look at this morning is part of a larger section. And it will only make sense to us if we realize that. The section began back in chapter 2, verse 11, with these words. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter is talking to Christians and he says your commitment to Christ is going to make you a stranger to those who are not Christians. You will seem strange to them because of your commitment to Christ. But Peter says instead of shutting yourself off from those people who think you're strange, you're to live such good lives among them that they are won over to worship God with you. And Peter says, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to overcome your own sinful desires. There's a battle to be fought in our own hearts. And then having started with that general point, Peter went on to look at various relationships where we are called to live good lives. He started with the kind of relationship that's most distant from us, our relationship to the government. He said we're to live good lives by submitting to the government. And then Peter brought it just a step closer to us by mentioning local government. And last week he brought it another step closer by talking about the relationship between slaves and masters. And we saw last week the kind of slavery Peter was speaking about was close to the modern relationship between an employee and employer. Not exactly the same, but it was close enough that we can apply it pretty easily to our work situations. And now, at the beginning of chapter 3, Peter brings this down to the very closest level. He shows how we are to live good lives at home. So that others will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's the context of chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. So let's read these verses. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. 
They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is God's word. There are two very clear sections to this. Paul, Peter speaks to ladies, then he speaks to men. First of all, verses 1 to 6 are addressed to ladies. Obviously, the focus is on married ladies, but we'll see in a few moments, the main point of this section applies to all ladies, married or single. And in verse 1, Peter connects this all the way back to chapter 2, verse 12. There he said to all Christians, live such good lives among the pagans that your good deeds will win them to God. Now here in verse 1, Peter says, Ladies, live such good lives at home that your good deeds will win pagans to God. Now at first we might think verse 1 is only about Christian wives winning non-Christian husbands. But later on, when Peter gives examples from the Old Testament, the ladies he mentions had believing husbands. So in verse 1, Peter is saying, Christian wives live this way in order to win pagans to God. And if your own husband happens to be a pagan, then he's the first one you're hoping to win. You might wonder, how could any of these ladies have had non-Christian husbands? Doesn't the New Testament forbid Christians to marry non-Christians? Yes, absolutely it does. If a Christian marries a non-Christian, it is disobedience to God. The Christian is denying their commitment to God. They're saying publicly that they have a higher commitment to someone else. Their commitment to that non-Christian overrides their commitment to God. They will disobey God in order to have that non-Christian. And yet, if the Christian has any genuine commitment to God, their marriage will be full of frustration and disappointment. Why? Because the marriage cannot be what it's supposed to be. A marriage is intended to be the most intimate human relationship there is. But how could a Christian ever achieve true intimacy with a non-Christian? They are living for totally different things. They're serving two different lords. The Christian is serving God. The non-Christian is serving something else. They're incompatible at the most fundamental level. And so, the only way a Christian could ever end up with a non-Christian spouse is if they were already married before one of them then went on to become a Christian. And in the early days of the Christian church, that would have been a fairly common thing. 
These people are all first-generation Christians. Any married person who came to Christ would find themselves in this situation, unless their spouse also came to Christ. And here Peter speaks to all Christian wives, and he says, Submit to your own husbands, so that pagans will see your good lives. Then he says, if any of you have pagan husbands, husbands who do not believe the word, then they're the first one you're hoping to win. So then what does Peter mean when he says, submit to your husband? Well, what did he mean when he said back in chapter 2, verse 13, submit for the Lord's sake to every human authority? He meant... Submit to the leadership structure God has put in place. God did not intend nations to live in anarchy. God has given authority to government. And the purpose of that authority is to help nations function well and to thrive. Human government is to lead, not for its own good, but for the people's good. Now, of course, individual rulers can misuse and abuse that authority. They often do. But it's the abuse of the authority that's bad, not the authority itself. And the Bible is equally insistent that God does not intend families to live in anarchy. He has given husbands the responsibility of leading their families. And that can be abused. But again, it's the abuse that's wrong, not the authority itself. Now, I know very well our society may choke on its tea at the very mention of husbands being called to lead. But isn't this just one more area where our commitment to God makes us strangers in this world? Jesus himself recognized the authority structure in the family and he lived it out. In Luke chapter 2, we're told that as a boy, Jesus submitted himself to his parents. It's exactly the same Greek word that's used here about wives. We're also told Jesus lives always in submission to his father, his father in heaven. Even within the Trinity, there is a structure of authority. Jesus himself says that. And last week, we saw that Jesus has left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And that applies here too. When God has put a leadership structure in place, we submit to it like Jesus did and does. The only exceptions to that are instances when submitting to that authority would involve sin. Later in this passage, Peter commands husbands to exercise their leadership well, to exercise it for their wife's good, not for the husband's own comfort, not for the husband's own advantage. We read earlier from Ephesians chapter 5. There we're told the husband's leadership is to be a self-sacrificing leadership. It's to be like Christ's leadership of the church. 
Jesus gave himself up for the church and husbands are to do the same. And so, if a Christian husband takes his responsibility at all seriously, then it should be a pleasure for the wife to submit to his leadership. She can only benefit from that kind of self-sacrificing leadership. But here Peter says, even if the husband is not taking that high calling seriously, because he's a pagan who doesn't believe God's word, Peter says, even then, submit to his leadership anyway. Why? So that he may be won over without words by your behavior. And here's where we get to the point that is applicable to all ladies. And actually, all Christians, whether they're ladies or not. But here, it's addressed to ladies specifically. And we could put it in the form of a question. Ladies, what is the most beautiful thing about you? Having called ladies to live lives that will win over pagans, now Peter says at the end of verse 2, what will win them over is the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Peter is not forbidding beauty that comes from nice clothes, gold jewelry, or style hair. He says, that's not to be the only kind of beauty you have. That external beauty is not to be the most striking or attractive thing about you. The Old Testament gives us an example of someone who was like that. And he happens to be a man. In 2 Samuel, when the writer introduces us to David's son Absalom, this is how he introduces Absalom. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Now that information would be fine if we then heard something about Absalom's character. But we don't. What we have just read is the most significant thing the writer could find to tell us about Absalom. He looked great and his hair had impressive volume. And as we read on in 2 Samuel, it becomes clear Absalom had a rotten character. His outward appearance really was the only handsome thing about him. That example shows us Peter could have made his point about all Christians. But he chooses to make it here just to ladies. In a moment we'll think about why he does that. 
But first, let's make sure we've got his point. It's nice to look great, but verse 4 tells us what really matters is your inner self, your heart. Whatever word you want to use for the real you. Who you are at the deepest level. Your personality, your nature, your disposition, your character. Peter says that should be the most beautiful thing about you. Is it? Do you work harder at your looks or your character? That's the question. Well, what constitutes a beautiful inner you? Peter describes it as a gentle and quiet spirit. The word translated gentle here only occurs three other times in the New Testament. Two of those times the word is used to refer to Jesus Christ. He is described as gentle. So this is not an exclusively feminine thing. It characterized Jesus Christ. Last week we saw that was his attitude as he went to the cross. He showed a gentle spirit. It doesn't mean he sat in the corner and never said anything. And that is not what ladies are called to either. It means not pushing, not insisting on your own rights, not demanding your own way. That would be a harsh and defiant spirit. We've all seen that, and it's ugly. Quiet here means not silent, but calm. Not a source of commotion and strife, but a source of peace. We've all seen people with a violent, contentious spirit. And that is ugly. But a gentle and quiet spirit is beautiful. Verse 4 says it's beautiful to God. It is of great worth in God's sight. Or it's very precious in God's sight. In other words, this kind of inner beauty pleases the one person Christians want to please most of all. And also in verse 4 we're told this kind of beauty is an unfading beauty. The same word was used back in chapter 1 for the inheritance God has in store for us as Christians. That inheritance can never perish, spoil, or fade. And now we learn the kind of inner beauty we've been talking about is the kind of beauty that will go with us to that inheritance. This is eternal beauty. This is what we will be perfectly in God's presence in heaven. So as we begin to display and develop this now, we are becoming heavenly. That's true for all of us as Christians. So then why does Peter apply it specifically here to ladies? Well, think of it this way. The Bible is always a countercultural book. Always. The Bible challenges every single human culture. 
And here it challenges what our culture tells women. There's a very significant message our society sends to women. It's the message that the very best you can achieve is good looks. That is the greatest, most significant beauty you can manage. Just look at the cosmetics industry. Look at the fashion industry. Do those industries encourage women to believe they are more than their looks? Or think of sporting events. Particular events where women are not involved in the main event. They're not competing. They're there simply to stand around in the background in their underwear. You've seen that. You know what I'm talking about. As if the greatest thing those ladies could contribute is their looks. Now I know there's a bit of a backlash against this at the moment. But it's a backlash that doesn't go very deep. If you don't believe me that it doesn't go deep, consider the money-making juggernaut of the pornography industry. That industry is not wasting away. It hasn't fallen on hard times, financially speaking. It's growing exponentially. And that industry is overwhelmingly focused on the objectification of women. The number one message it sends to women is that the best thing they could ever achieve would be to look desirable. And probably as a consequence of that, consider the huge amounts of teenage girls who think the very best thing they could share with a boy is a naked picture of themselves. They have been led to believe by our society that the greatest beauty they could ever achieve is outward beauty. That there could be nothing greater a boy might see in them. Well, the Bible pushes back firmly against all of that. It says to ladies, you are more than your looks. There's something much more significant about you than your outward appearance. God is interested in the you behind your looks. Maybe you're here this morning and all the men you've ever known have only cared about your body. But please hear this, that God doesn't judge you by your outward appearance. So if men find you physically beautiful, please don't believe that all you have are your looks. Don't believe that's the only thing that matters about you. God sees more in you than your looks. So don't live to be praised for your looks. Live for praise from the God who sees beyond your looks. And if you're here and you feel insecure about your looks, if men don't seem to notice you, Please understand, your value in God's eyes has nothing at all to do with your looks. 
If you're a lady who's getting older and you're worrying about the loss of your looks, please hear what God is saying to you. As far as I'm concerned, you are becoming more beautiful, not less. If you are pursuing me, you are growing in attractiveness. And true brothers and sisters in Christ will see that in you also. Because they don't care about you in just a superficial way. They care about the real you just like I do. Of all places, the church should be a place where we appreciate beautiful characters more than we appreciate beautiful figures. I mentioned earlier there is a bit of a backlash in our culture against the objectification of women. But that backlash, in so far as it goes, it does not encourage ladies to develop a beautiful inner character, does it? It encourages them to demand and to elbow and to trample their way forward. But the Bible does not call ladies to fight back through ugly character, through a harsh and defiant spirit. It says, respond by seeking the beautiful character that God loves. The beautiful character shown by Jesus Christ. Alongside Jesus, who he's mentioned at the end of chapter 2, Peter then adds some other examples for us. In verse 5 he mentions, generally, the holy women of the past. And they are described as women who put their hope in God. That's significant because that's the only kind of woman this is going to make sense to. What Peter is saying here about inner beauty, it will only be good news if the affirmation you care about most is God's affirmation. If you care more about human praise then none of this is going to free you from focusing on your outward appearance. In verse 6, Peter mentions Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And this proves that the application here is to all women, not just those with unbelieving husbands. The Old Testament emphasizes that Abraham believed God. But if we went back to the book of Genesis and read about Sarah and Abraham, the striking thing you and I would notice is that Sarah didn't always get it right. She didn't always display a gentle and quiet spirit. But Peter sees Sarah as a lady on the road to a gentle and quiet spirit. He sees her as a lady who was obviously in the process of adorning herself with that unfading inner beauty. So be encouraged. If even prickly old Sarah could become an example of inner beauty, then you certainly can too. 
And now finally, Peter moves on to speak to men. You could be forgiven, ladies, for being a bit put out that you got six verses and the men only get one. But sometime later, have a look back at Ephesians chapter 5, and you will find that there, the men get eight and a half verses, and the ladies get three and a half. So it all evens out, if my maths is right, at nine and a half verses each. But there is a genuine reason why men get less direct instruction here. And it's not because it gets evened out in some other place. It's because everything that has been said to the ladies has actually been said to the men as well. What do I mean by that? Well, look again at what verse 7 says. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Actually, the verse makes three separate statements. Most of our English translations mash the first two of those statements together. They jumble them up a little bit. But what the verse says is this. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives as the weaker partner. That's the first statement. The second statement is, and treat them with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. They're separate statements, so let's think about them separately. To begin with, Peter says, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives as the weaker partner. What does Peter mean by calling the woman the weaker partner? Well, it is not about any kind of inferiority. He does not mean this in the sense that they are the weakest link. No, this is picking up on what Peter has just called wives to in verses 1 to 6. They have been called in those verses to voluntarily submit to their husband's leadership. That puts the husband in a strong position and it puts the wife in a vulnerable position. That's why wives with non-Christian husbands might be afraid to put themselves in such a position. Peter mentioned that at the end of verse 6. He says, don't give way to fear. Why might a wife give way to fear? Because her attitude of submission could be abused by her husband. And yes, the fact that women are often less physically strong, not always, but often, that does add another layer to all this. But I think the primary point here is this. Husbands, be considerate of what your wife has been called to as a Christian. Don't you dare exploit the fact that she is seeking to obey God by submitting to you. Don't you dare treat her like an unpaid servant in the house. Don't you dare sit around barking orders at her from the couch. Maybe some of you'd say, I wouldn't dare. Okay. 
But supposing you had the kind of wife who would accept your orders from the couch, would you dare then, if you thought you'd get away with it? Would you exploit that? Peter says, don't. And don't treat her as if her looks are the most important thing about her. As if that's the only thing that perks your interest in her through the week. And if her looks happen to be fading a little bit, don't begin to treat her like she's not interesting anymore. Don't undervalue true beauty. Don't undervalue a gentle and quiet spirit in your wife. Maybe you have undervalued it up to now, but learn to develop an appreciation for her inner beauty. Is that how most men are? No, it's not. But Christian men are not to be like most men. We are foreigners and exiles in this world. And one of the many ways we are to stand out in this world as Christian men is because of our genuine consideration for our wives. Our hard work to lead for her good, not for our own comfort. And so what Peter is asking is this. Men, how do you use your strength? Do you use your strong position to try and exploit your wife's submission? Would you if you thought you'd get away with it? If you are physically stronger... Do you ever use that to intimidate your wife a little bit? Do you ever stomp around? Do you ever throw things around? Just so she knows you're the boss. Do we use our strong position to nurture our wives or do we use it to crush them? Do we use it to crush their spirits, if not their bones? Do we beat them down with our harsh words? With our cynical attitude? If we do, then we need to repent. We need to ask for forgiveness from our wives and from our God. Because he looks at our wives and he sees his beautiful, very precious daughters. That's what Peter means in the first part of verse 7. That's what he means by be considerate as you live with your wives as the weaker partner. What about the second part? Treat your wives with respect or with honour as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. The point here is that whatever difference in roles there might be between a husband and a wife, 
whatever dis different responsibilities they might have in a marriage, there is absolutely no difference in the man and woman standing before God. There is no difference in their importance, their dignity, or their status with God. They are both equally heirs of the gracious gift of life. That's referring to eternal life and the inheritance that is kept in heaven for us to be delivered to us when Jesus returns to this earth. We are to give our wives the honour due to an equal heir of God's blessing. And at the end of verse 7, Peter says to husbands, if you fail to do these things, if you fail to be considerate of her voluntary submission to you, if you fail to honour her as a genuinely equal heir of God's blessing, if you devalue her, or fail to respect her as your equal in God's sight, God will stop listening to your prayers. Isn't that what the text says at the end of verse 7? Is there any other way we could understand what Peter says? Be considerate, respect her, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It doesn't say, I'll not be able to pray. It's saying my lack of consideration and respect will make my prayers worthless in God's sight. Wayne Grudem says about that statement from Peter. So concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. No Christian husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way bestowing honor on her. To take the time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It is serving God. It is a spiritual activity pleasing in his sight. If any of us ever thought that male leadership was an easy ticket, surely we can't think that way anymore. It is a deadly serious responsibility. How you and I treat our wives if we have wives, it has a significant impact on our relationship with God. You and I live in a cultural moment where respecting women is a politically correct thing to talk about. Think about hashtag me too, all of that. That's fashionable. But the Bible calls Christian men to do more than just say the right things. It calls us to actually live it out. First and foremost, at home with our own wives. Honoring them enough 
to have eyes for them only. Honoring them enough to go further than that and not stopping at mere faithfulness to our wives, but going on to love most in them what God loves most in them, their unfading inner beauty. Leading them in a way that encourages and nurtures that, not in a way that frustrates it and crushes it. And the Bible calls Christian ladies to pursue inner beauty even if it is not being encouraged and nurtured by a Christian husband. The Bible calls you to care more about your character than your looks. And all this, for men and women, is part of what it means to live good lives. Lives that draw people to our good God. Let's pray and ask for his help. <coughs> Father, we come to you, men and women. We come first and foremost as your children bought by the precious blood of your son Jesus. We stand before you on the same level at the foot of the cross. We stand side by side, co-heirs of eternal life, equals. And we ask you to give each of us the courage and commitment to do what you call us to do. Where we need to admit our sin and ask for forgiveness, will you help us to follow that right through? To repent before you and before our spouse. Not to excuse our behaviour, but to turn from it. And will you deliver us from the temptation to take any of these verses and wave them in front of other people? Help us apply them to ourselves, to our own hearts. We realize all of us are called to self-sacrificial love, either through our submission or through our leadership. And Father, if this teaching is new to some of us, Help us to begin building this kind of marriage, knowing it will make us strange in the eyes of many people. For those of us who aren't married, but hope to be, help us begin now being the kind of man who would be this kind of husband. Help us to begin being the kind of woman who would be this kind of wife. And as a church, will you help us to encourage and support one another? Whether we're married or not. May we help each other as we seek to live such good lives among the pagans. That though they accuse us of doing wrong. 
they may see our good deeds and glorify you on the day you visit us. Amen. Our next